a timeless literary classic turned into a song by a genius producer. An orchestral monument crafted by one of history's most skillful composers. And a prog rock shred fest loaded with virtuosity. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. So before we dive into today's episode featuring epic songs, I just want to give you a quick reminder that we actually have a free podcast companion course. So if you're looking for additional lessons, creative activities, and more info on all the songs featured on a Themes and Variation episode, be sure to head to soundfly.com to check it out. So joining me today are Mahaya Lee, our VP of Curriculum and a great songwriter in her own right. You'll remember her from our very first episode, Songs from the First Album I Ever Bought. And we're joined by our boss, uh, Ian Temple, the CEO and founder of Soundfly. He's also a fantastic pianist and composer. You can hear his stuff uh, in the band Sontag Shogun. This one was a ton of fun because I, I love working with these two and uh, it was really fun to just be able to roll tape on the kind of discussion that we get to have uh, pretty frequently here at Soundfly. We get into all kinds of things on this episode. Uh, one of these tracks may have been the very first effective use of vocoder, uh, how one simple melody can be mined into a 15-minute orchestral masterpiece. And there is a very real possibility that uh, I've actually selected the cheesiest song in the history of themes and variation. Short history, but it's still a crown I will wear very proudly. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Epic Songs. Guys, today we are talking epic songs. Definitely a very vague theme. It could mean a lot of different things. Where, where did your mind go when you were thinking epic song? So for me, I, I, I created a whole template for this. I was like, I could, <laughs> epic music is like my thing, right? Like I just, I, I try and make epic music. I love, I was mm-hmm. in a post-rock band for a little while. So that was always like, how can we, <laughs> the, the goal of post-rock is always like, can you go more epic than like the previous <laughs> until you end up with like 50 minute songs? Yeah. So I, I love this. So, so, so when I, when I started thinking about this, I had so many songs in mind, like I had no idea how I was going to choose them so i created a template for myself and i Mm -hmm. created each of the songs on the template one of the things that i've been itching to do since we first decided this was going to be how the podcast would function is find ways to interpret these themes Mm -hmm. that weren't super obvious um so the first thing i did is i looked up the definition of epic (laughs) just to make sure that i understood what it meant do you have it in front of you? I don't have it in I, front I, of you. Do me. you want me to recite? Yes, so a long that. poem. This is the first definition that I got from, the first from Webster's. One is the yeah. version? A long poem, typically one derived from ancient oral tradition, narrating the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. So <laughs> I did oh. decide that Whoa. that was the, the route I was going to try Excellent. to go down. The first thing that comes to mind for me is definitely just, you know, 80s rock. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. have a real reason for that. Oh, interesting. See, I went 70s. It might be because you're like a couple years older than me. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah, added yeah. a decade. Yeah. I think you're both right. I think loud guitar was, was a fixture in both eras. 
Uh, it definitely jumped the shark in the eighties, but I, I think that that that's that is something inherently epic. If there's a loud guitar or a riff that just kind of makes your your head bang a little bit, that to me is a pretty pretty obvious uh, staple of epicness. Yeah, there was kind of like a, a can of worms that I wasn't I was unwilling to open, which was the pro, was was like the prog rock of the seventies yeah. stuff. Like yeah. like going going <laughs> down like King Crimson, like Frank yeah. Zappa, like Mm-hmm. It's too epic in like a certain way that I was just like, once I start going there, I'm going to lose like 58 hours of my life. So I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't open that can of worms. I did open that can of worms and I did lose approximately 58 hours of my life. So I, and the, the, what I'm hearing here is awesome because we all picked very different songs and, and that is the beauty of themes and variation. We're getting these variations on this theme that, uh, yes, it's, the name works. The name checks out. Can I tell you about yeah. one of the songs I didn't choose because I think it might have been the most epic by all these definitions yeah, that I'd no, chosen it? I'd love to hear them. And then why don't we listen to your track? Cool. So tell us what didn't make the cut. Let's just start with the fact that <laughs> Achilles' Agony and Ecstasy in Eight Parts by Manowar is a song that I really sat with and thought about. Yeah, Man of War, I remember vaguely. I remember the shirts more than the music. Yeah, it's it's over 28 minutes long, and it tells the story of Achilles. When you think about epics, most of us think Iliad and Odyssey, if we went through through middle school and (laughs) high school. Just basically decided I wasn't qualified to talk heavy metal. I studied classics in like high school and stuff. I did not. I had to go to college to get any of that. I'm trying not to make this a Canadian thing with you. Our school system's great. Our school system's fantastic. I literally went to Italy in high school in order to study (laughs) classics. I read read, uh, Virgil's Aeneid in Latin. So if we in in junior year of high school. So if if we're going down that, once again, epic is kind of my thing. (laughs) Uh, This is a really exciting topic for me. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that I didn't end up doing is I didn't do Abba's Cassandra. I'm glad you didn't. Not a big disco person, so I let that one go. So I am a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe and Mm -hmm. have been since my, like, tormented Mm -hmm. teenage days. Um, Another person who is a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe is Eric Wolfson. Mm -hmm. Also, Alan Parsons. The two of them together started the Alan Parsons Project, Mm -hmm. and the first album they released was based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. The vocals are so treated. Yeah. Oh, I've got I've got notes on that vocoder. I would expect nothing less, and I'm excited about it. Mejia, uh, Ooh, you I tell the fine folks at home what they're listening to. So this is The Raven, which is the second track from Tales of Mystery and Imagination, the concept album by the Alan Parsons Project. little personal anecdote for a second. I got to discuss this album with Alan Parsons in a community college songwriting class when I was 18. 
he came in to talk and everybody just wanted to talk to him about Pink Floyd and the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. But he got really excited. Like, I think if you ever have an opportunity to meet him, bring this album up because he gets very pumped about it. I'm excited for this because I know so little about Alan Parsons. Do you want my first impressions or our first impressions? Yeah, you know sure. I mean, the bass. You yeah. start right away with bass. I'm going to guess uh, flat wounds probably on a P bass with a pick. It might even be a felt pick because it's kind of a warm I was wondering sound. if it was a synth. I was going to ask you. I because it's Dang. so i don't think it is i think it's a plucked uh and really i think Just i hear a pick control. with flat wounds and it i did write down the credits do you know yeah, who on played this? bass on this joe puerta so i don't know uh, the guys that, so the majority of the band of this is the guys from ambrosia i went down that rabbit hole too they're pretty epic is associated with Sheena Easton and Bruce Hornsby. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I don't know what bass he plays. <laughs> so. Well, now I'm going to look that up. I, yeah. The name sounds familiar, but uh, Ian, your, your first impressions of the like first minute of, uh, of this song. Yeah, well, it's such a distinctive uh, treatment of the vocals. I, it's funny because I was expecting a poem or something, especially based on yeah. your, your lead yeah. in, but then the vocals yeah. were so treated that I couldn't understand any words <laughs> so i'm like if there's an epic poem going on right now like i don't know we yeah. are uh, awesomely we're two for two on vocoders marty's daft punk song last episode had featured vocoder so now we've got another episode Check with vocoder that so that's you know respect to marty and daft punk but <laughs> this song is credited as being the first effective i think the word they use is effective the first effective use of vocoder on a mainstream So it was track. tried before, but like people hated it. Apparently then... Alan Parsons, when people ask him about it, they'll be like, so you're credited with using a vocoder for the first time. And he'll be like, well, other people did it and other people did we it effectively. Did it <laughs> we get credit for it for some reason. I mean, I mean imagine amazing. hearing this song and not ever yeah. having heard vocoder, vocoder in it a track before. Mind. And you're just like, what the hell is that? When, well, here's the other when thing. When was this released? Real quick? Uh, the first time it was released, I want to say, I, I have all these pieces of paper. I got it in front school. of me if you 1976. want. 1976. Yeah. Because I remember the first time hearing Vocoder probably, and it was much later, I was still like, what is that? That's incredible. Yeah. But it, like just hearing this on vinyl with headphones on, probably in your parents' basement in the 70s or whatever, like whatever <laughs> people did then, I don't Maybe know. Maybe you've been but, experimenting with some controlled substances. Yeah, <laughs> very likely. Uh, and then this comes on. <laughs> oh my God. Is that guy talking through a cloud? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> Just vocals in general on this on this song are fascinating to me because you have the vocoder in the first verse. That's Alan Parsons on verse one. Nice. He has almost no vocal performances on anything. He like was just kind of a production genius who did all these really cool things. And mm. um, but later you get a different lead vocalist. His name is Leonard Whiting. Mm -hmm. Whiting, I want to say. He was Romeo in that old version of Romeo and Juliet we all had to watch in high school, except for Carter. Yeah, yeah, I didn't watch didn't that. Didn't do any classes. <laughs> I watched the Claire Danes version. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know. I, oh, I mean... okay, good. I thought you were being serious. <laughs> but no, he played Romeo in that 1960s Romeo and Juliet, which means he's responsible for some of my misconceptions. But yeah, so he takes over lead vocals at some point, I believe. In addition to that, you do have Wolfson doing some background layers later and a choir, too. Plus oh, the vocoder. Choir There's is, a lot going is key. on. Choir is yeah. key yeah. to, That's to a bring big... some epic. Mm -hmm. That's like, yeah. you know. And yeah. it has all kinds of technical goodies in it, including mm -hmm. that big modulation you both spotted. We start in what to me 
feels very much like an A Dorian world. You have that cool repeated baseline. Yep. Uh, but there's an F sharp that is very prevalent mm-hmm. in the melody, or in the melody as well as the synth layers, which is a sound a lot of us are used to, but mm-hmm. it's not straightforward, normal harmony. In Perfect mode for the subject, though. Yeah. Honestly, like it, it, it there's a darkness. Obviously, there's a lightness with the the upper uh, portion of the mode, and yeah, if you want to write something that's kind of dark but like has a certain brightness to it, then. It's hard to feel super settled in Dorian because you don't have that big leading tone on the five. Um, right. We talked about my love of gray areas in songs when we talked about um, songs from the first album you ever bought with Marty. Mm-hmm. Modes like Dorian that are like dark, but there's a little ambiguity mm-hmm. are great songwriting devices in particular. Hey guys, excuse the interruption. But I thought I'd explain a little bit about what we've been discussing during the episode, in case you're not super familiar with modes like Dorian. So the minor we're used to hearing most often in popular Western music is what's known as harmonic minor. Here's a little sample of what it sounds like. Now the notes in A harmonic minor are A, B, C, D, E, F, and G sharp. But A Dorian uses the notes A, B, C, D, E, F sharp, and G natural. In both examples, we get a minor sound, largely because of the relationship between A and C. But A Dorian tends to sound a little brighter than A harmonic minor because we have an F sharp instead of an F natural. It also sounds a little less settled and more ambiguous because it uses G natural instead of G sharp. To learn more about subjects like modes, visit soundfly.com where our courses, mentors, and online community can help you gain the skills you need to reach your musical goals. And as a thank you to our listeners, Soundfly is offering 20% off any monthly or annual subscription to our incredible course content. Just enter the code THEMES at checkout. All right, back to the show. So you're in that Dorian world, and I think when you are using a less familiar mode, getting really repetitive and keeping things simple is a good call. And harmonically, you're not moving around a lot. You've just got a lot of A minor. And then right at the end of the section, you do get an actual E chord with that raised leading tone. Mm. Mm. And that loops you back around again, which is oh, it's just very cool because for a second it's like, oh, wait, we're in familiar minor. Oh, wait, we're not. But so the second time you don't get the raised leading tone, you get an E power chord, which then transitions nicely to this implied F minor. Um, you don't actually get an A flat on the F minor the first time you hear it, but mm-hmm. it comes back around. But what happens is they take that power chord shape and they shift it up. Mm-hmm. And they have this really cool little repeated ostinato of fourths, which is they just use these common tones and move between three different chords. Nice. But those four notes work on all three chords and it's very, very effective um, and allows you to move from A Dorian to F minor. Huge fan of that. Any, like I've been in reharm world for the last week, and and that's kind of a key is just understanding 
you know what node what notes work with other chords and just like how you can make them uh fit as tensions or chord tones and they, they there's so many possibilities for for unique uh voicings and, and changes that way i'm i'm curious what put this song like over the top for you because like there are lots of different like you know epic songs like what what was it that while you were listening to it you're like no this is the song i need to choose because because of this it has that cheesy over the top melodrama of a musical Ooh, without yeah being cheesy <laughs> yeah yeah that melodrama is is is, is a good word oh, it's I, everywhere I, yeah, yeah yeah even that modulation you know it comes so close to just a cheesy cheesy modulation but it's smooth instead i think the the orchestration of course has oh, yeah. so much to do with that like different instruments doing that exact same thing you're like uh, I don't but know again i think in general i'm just a person who's a fan of complex emotions and how they're addressed <laughs> in art i'm not that's weird i'm not a fan of complex emotions well but i i acknowledge that they're there yeah. <laughs> and i like art that does that too yeah, um, yeah especially some some kind of more interesting harmonies i think that's where you 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 see a little bit more you're not quite sure. You don't get those like easy resolutions or those right. like, you know, really obvious, like sad or happy vibe. It's not just saying this right. is how you should feel. Yeah. It, it's kind of being like, this is the condition that this character is in. Do what you will with that. This album originally came out at a really experimental time in music from a guy who was known for being really experimental in some of the mm -hmm. coolest ways. There initially wasn't a solo there, and it just you know allows the orchestration to shine. Because if you if you can tune out the guitar, and I'm not saying you should, <laughs> but it's a great solo. But if you can, when you listen to that, or if you manage to find the older version, okay, um, just the orchestration of the choir and stuff. Yeah, is incredible. Well, yeah, that's. Uh, um, I think that's that's why I would. Uh, you know, I think occasionally I love a good guitar solo. Don't get me wrong. There's a, just something a little cliche-ish, especially yeah, from the era. True. You know, exactly. True. So lyrically, this is weird for me. I'm not going to dive in too deep about this. I don't like the idea of paraphrasing Edgar Allan Poe, and that's all these lyrics are doing. That said, it would be really hard to just set that text to music yeah. and have it work in this genre. I think you get a pass. You get, on this I mean, one. you get a pass because it all it works. And the big ideas are definitely there, um, mm. and it's not bad lyric writing. It's just you're paraphrasing one of the greatest writers of all time. <laughs> I think the song is an excellent study for anyone who wants to write music that could appeal to a large group of people while also being unique and creative. It mm -hmm. just does the perfect amount of like, here are these sprinkles of complex ideas without overdoing it and making it inaccessible. Ian, is there anything you'd like to say about your piece before, other than the title, of course, let's, uh, let's keep that a bit of a surprise before we uh, hit play on this? As I said at the, the, the start of the show, I, I came up with a template um, <laughs> yeah. to help myself navigate. So, so I, I decided that songs would be graded according to five characteristics. Oh, this is specific. We have uh, insane dynamics, 
We have tension till you're going to explode. Yep. That's another thing I was looking for. We've got length. It's got to go on longer than you expect. Um, yep. We've got grandiosity. It's got a big sound. Um, mm-hmm. And then the fifth was just like magic sauce, like something unexpected or unexplainable. I, I, I Like working with you, it's of course you've done this template. Like it makes total <laughs> sense to me. It's awesome. Um, it it really helped. It helped yeah. a lot. Like I was going, I had things like Flight of the Valkyries on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little short and the actual piece <laughs> itself does not have that much dynamics to it. It kind of yeah. starts at one volume and kind of continues that volume the whole way. Wait, I was, how long I was is going Flight of the Valkyries? It's like four or five minutes. It's, really? it's way shorter than well, I would have thought it would be. Yeah. Remember, it's part of a like I like 12 hour opera or something right. like that. It's part of the ring cycle. I yeah, think. That's right. So a three day um, performance. If you yeah. See it's it like correctly. a th- part of a three day <laughs> performance. I, I was considering Whitney Houston's. I will always love you. There was something like, you know, <laughs> that's a good song. I was, I was, I was kind of looking at fish and some of the jam band oh. stuff. Of course, you were looking at uh, fish. I, I almost went time. down that road. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Definitely had the length thing going for it. Yeah. Um, um, I, I thought they were missing some of the magic sauce, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so that that's the template I used to, and and there was only one track I found that had a had a five on all five of those. Yeah, surprised, but I also understand. <laughs> Is it Bolero? Yes. So we are listening to Bolero by Ravel, yeah. Maurice Ravel. It starts very, very quiet. But it definitely gets there. Like, yeah, having heard this piece more than more than a few times, um, knowing where it gets to is like pretty, pretty Carter's epic. just kind of bragging right now because the only class we ever took together was um, History of Western Music. All bets would have been I on. Smoked I smoked you on that exam. That I absolutely smoked you oh, on that man. one. It was awesome. I'm we had good a bet. At big ideas and not great at details. <laughs> Bolero by Ravel. Take it away. All right. So so Bolero is uh, is an insane song. Um, <laughs> it's it's it, <laughs> if you haven't heard it, um, it it here, I'm going to read its structure to you. <laughs> it, it's two ideas basically. So it goes A A B B A A B B A A B B A B outro. <laughs> I guess Ravel came up with uh, a melody that he thought sounded particularly insistent. Yeah. <laughs> insistent being the word he used, and just yeah. uh, it's almost a study in orchestration. He just yeah. uh, passed it around to different instruments in the orchestra and different combinations of instruments. Uh, over and over and over again um, over the course of kind of anywhere from 16 to 18 minutes. And during that time, it just grows and grows and grows and you hear the melody differently and you lose kind of track of where you are. And the entire time, it's got a, a bit of an almost martial drum beat. And the, you know, the instruments that are not playing the melody uh, kind of play these uh, just kind of very simple 
uh, background things like bump, 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 <laughs> bump, and and the whole thing um, creating like a rhythmic and timbral tapestry. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of obvious kind of chord changes until the very end. It's just insistently repetitive, and that just builds this tension. Yeah, you know, it just builds and builds and builds uh, as it kind of gets louder and more instruments come in and you have like a flute playing with a violin and then you have a right. piccolo playing with a, a trumpet and, and, and it kind of completely changes the timbre of each of them when they're playing it together um, and, then, and then they kind of fade into that background. My, my first thought was like, it, it, it sounds like I don't know, like the Pied Piper or some kind of yep. character walking through town and one by one, like people are like leaving their houses and joining <laughs> that, that yeah. person as he's like, you know, just marching through town. And, yeah. and uh, by the end, the whole town is like marching together wherever the hell they're marching to. <laughs> I, I think, the, well, the way the song ends, they probably just march directly off a cliff. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, but Ravel himself thought it, it was it was first performed in, in 1929, I think, 1928. Um, and, and he, he said it had a real industrial quality to it, or, or he, he thought of it almost like a factory, mm. um, and, uh, that repetitiveness and that kind of industrial sound, uh, being an almost, uh, kind of an expression of the industrialism of the, of the age. Um, so a few things that really stand out. Number one, it's just, you know, it wouldn't work if it wasn't also like a really pretty melody, a really right. beautiful totally. melody. So there are two themes, the A theme and the B theme, and they just kind of share back and forth um the eighth theme is is it's all just c major um right. c major scale kind of uh moving mostly in steps um very kind of happy very expectant but also almost like pastoral in in some ways um despite like the industrial background um and then the b theme is kind of weird it I don't actually know what scale it's using, but it, it, it's in the key of C, but it's got like a B flat and a D flat and an A flat some, wow. and, a, and an E natural sometimes, but an E flat other times. So he kind of goes a little bit off. Yeah, I was going to say just C the, minor, but that E is like, whoa, <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. I, I love that Carter, you pointed out that kind of the phrasing on that, that, yeah. that, that I, I called it the tension stutter. Um, or whatever it's it's this like i wonder how it's written i know that the when it's played the musicians are are encouraged to like lean into it um so everything like that is meant to be like overemphasized uh so more than even what's kind of written on the page but it's just adding that tension right as you get later in the song it's like the whole like all these horns and stuff doing it Yeah, I love that. Just a, um, a masterclass in in orchestration. So it was later in Ravel's life. Mm. Um, 
you know, before it premiered, he was like, orchestras are going to hate me. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to hate me for this. Um, and, and no, that hasn't been the case at all. It's, it's actually like one of his most popular works of all time, you know? Um, but I can understand that. I mean, it's just so, it just beats you over the head with this, these, Mm -hmm. these, these ideas just over and over and over again. Before we move on, we have to talk about the outro. It almost feels like sacrilege to play it without having listened to the full 15 minutes before it, you know, because on its own, it it can almost even sound like a little bit goofy, but you've just had this like insistent, never changing drum beat in your ear for 15 (laughs) minutes with this insane melody, just like buzzing around. And then suddenly, first of all, it, it, it modulates, it goes to an E major chord at mm. some point there um, when it's been in C just nonstop. And then it um, suddenly starts doing these like crashes and waves. And then the whole thing just, as I said, like tumbles off a cliff. Kind of didn't go down this rabbit hole. I know some people um, have suggested that he was beginning to have either aphasia, um, so losing mm. uh, the ability to kind of hear certain mm. things or dementia or something like that when he wrote this. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of don't really care that much. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, all of our brains are in different, you know, states of growth and decay and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, if, if, if that's what in, inspired it, then that, that, that's interesting, but I'm not sure you can ever really fully pinpoint that. That may have contributed to, to why he got so obsessed with the development of timbres. Hey again. So, in case you're wondering, the word timbre is used to describe how something sounds. Different sound sources, like guitars, glockenspiels, pianos, or the human voice, have unique characters and qualities. Timbre is an important consideration in the world of orchestration, where arrangers make decisions based not only on things like pitch and rhythm, but on how instruments blend together as well. If you're interested in expanding your arranging skills, visit us at soundfly.com and learn how one of our expert mentors can help you reach your musical goals. Well, we have one more song. Let's start with what I didn't pick. Uh, you know, I I did think, I thought very on the nose, and, and I did pick something I think very on the nose, but really, if you guys know uh, Faith No More's track, Epic. Uh, it really, that did cross my mind, but it would be a very short discussion. It's kind of a precursor to like Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, and it's a really awesome one hit, if that's going to be your hit. This is really lame, but like I did go down the 80s uh, shred rabbit hole and I was thinking of Mr. Biggs addicted to that rush. I don't expect you guys to have heard that song. It's uh, Billy Sheehan and Paul Gilbert. I tried to avoid picking this band, but I just, it could not happen. I picked a dream theater song. So I, I was a big dream theater fan Is way back when. Be honest right now. I have a story about that. So um, 18 years old, right out of high school. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I was taking music very seriously. Fast forward six months later, I am withdrawing from all my liberal arts classes because it's not going so well. 
I see this this pamphlet just says music in big bold letters and I, I go grab it and I have a look and it starts talking about the McEwen music program which I had no idea existed but in two years you could get a diploma playing the bass guitar which to me was insane and immediately I, I, I started to get this tunnel vision like I can totally do that and then on the back of this pamphlet it says uh, it's one of 14 partner schools in the world with Berkeley College of Music that stood out to me because Watching the Dream Theater live at Budokan DVD, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a DVD, but in the special features, they go back to Berkeley, where it all started, where John Petrucci and John Myung met Mike Portnoy and formed Majesty, which became Dream Theater. So, Mahe, the point I was going to make to you is, because we're married and because we met at Berkeley, I have to think there's Dream a Theater very fan. real possibility that if I'm not a Dream Theater fan at any point in my life, we just don't meet each other at all. Like That is definitely very possible. Point. Cool. But then, you know, my my reason for going changed. I got into jazz more and then it kind of did keep coming back to that. But it really, really planted the seed that that's where I wanted to go. And like the next three years of my life were planted because this band went there. And they're an excellent um, band. They are. And uh, we're going to get a little A taste. nice little band. Did <laughs> I said excellent. I just said excellent. Yeah. Dream I just heard, nice they're band. a nice little band. I was like, whoa, shots fired. You guys tell me what instrument this is i mean bass yes thank you some people don't they hear that ah, it's a guitar or something is everything bass right now yep even the harmonic well we'll get into that This is the glass prison uh, from the record Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. So I wanted to pick something from my favorite record, Train of Thought. This is not my favorite record, but I, I, I started, much like you, Ian, instead of a template, I started creating a checklist of epicness. So I started re, uh, listening to these songs and just writing down things that made them epic. This song is 13 minutes and 52 seconds. That's the whole song. <laughs> they have, like, I could have done a change of seasons, which is technically like 45 minutes, but what do I even do like th- this song was a lot to unpack there's that that kind of static noise i thought it was like rain water at the beginning of the track i don't think that that's what I it is i thought it was ian's headphones or mic situations no that's, the, that's just the top of the song <laughs> okay. and then the bell which i'll get into later Bell's but then nice. the bass takes over that that pitch using a, a harmonic the really cool thing about that static noise is they had this concept called the meta album concept through like five or six records this song opens the record and it is the exact same sound from the end of the last record. So they do that for like five oh, records. Uh, more on the, the checklist of epicness, you've got bass chords. Yep. You yep. have that bell tone yeah. at the beginning, right? And then John Myung plays a harmonic that uh, takes over. So all you bass players, that's the, it's a natural harmonic on the fourth fret of the oh, D God. string. If you just lightly tap that string and, and pluck it, you will get that it's an F sharp, but a very bell-like tone. He, what he's playing showcases the entire range yeah. of the instrument. So he's playing the low B, and it's just a beefy, beefy, beefy sound, and that harmonic. And then he's also playing chords uh, on the G string and the C string. Um, some other things on epicness, you heard the double kick drum just blasting away. Yep. That's definitely yep, epic. Definitely. Um, you've got bass tapping. You've got guitar tapping. You've got guitar sweep picking. 
Um, I, I know we're getting into is. too much technique and instruments here, but sweet this, picking. Uh, this checklist is very different from mine. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> all, I'll, all I'll say about sweet picking is to check out Jason Becker's Serana. Uh, you have unison riffs in this song. Uh, absolutely incredible. Unison anything is very you epic. You also have... <laughs> What's a unison riff? A unison riff is just multiple instruments like playing at the same time. Right, right. Um, actually, you know what? Monophonic motion. Um, you have uh, uh, instrument battles. You have keyboard versus guitar. <laughs> Was epic cheesiness on your on definitely, your definitely, and I, I I totally will own that. It is pretty cheese. This moment happens. It's, it's like, hard not to imagine though how much fun it would have yeah. been to to just play that. I didn't know that was an option for bass. You know, I seriously, I didn't know. I mean, it was. I do. I did. By the time I like, oh, the world is your really, oyster as a bassist. Well, I didn't know that you could play like that though. Oh. I thought that was reserved for guitar yeah. players and keyboard players, which uh, we got to point out is Jordan Rudess on this song. Other uh, notes on my checklist of epicness: you have soaring vocals, which don't enter the song until <laughs> minute three. You got pinch harmonics, some of my favorite guitar stuff ever. <sighs> this is pretty cheesy, but you have record scratches. So this is 2002. <laughs> oh, this song. No, no. Yeah, so uh, oh 2002, this song comes out, and oh, that was like no. peak new metal. Was it a statement, um, or just like they like the sound? Well, we're going to listen to that right now. Now listen to how this riff flips, though. So cool. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I I try not to make fun of the vocals too much. I I, I want to talk cool. about the record. They are. He, this song is actually it was written by Mike Portnoy, who was dealing with alcohol addiction. Mm. This is a an excerpt. Um, that I found online from from a uh, Dream Theater wiki fan page. Uh, the Glass Prison outlines the first three steps of the 12 steps to recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mike Portnoy explained it's about battling addiction. Mm. He actually takes lyrics from the AA book as well, for example. Oh, uh, this from the AA book. Yeah. Remember, we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. The first lyrics of the song are cunning, baffling, uh, powerful. So It's interesting to me that a band that just is showing so much virtuosic control over mm -hmm. their instrument, like everything in, the, in a Dream Theater song is so controlled. Yes. Right? Right? Like it's, it's so technical. It's, it's it's intense and it's insane and it's raw in a certain way, but it's but it's it's highly controlled still, um, and technical and and like you know very kept under wraps in a certain way. And it's interesting that the, the, to to kind of consider that in in light of those three steps, you know. Right. Uh, I got to admit, James LeBray, uh, vocalist, is a singer. That I will say, how I listened to Dream Theater songs was. A lot of them are instrumental. A lot of the songs with vocals feature instrumental parts. The vocals, to me, are just a slight addition to the song. I, I find myself a lot of times mm. when I'm listening to these songs, yeah. they're like, let's get to the shredding, let's get to the shredding, let's get to the shredding. He's an incredible singer, 
but it's very you know power metal singing there's not anything particularly to me uh, super unique um i do want to wait but let's just yeah, talk please. about that for a second yeah because i do think in styles like this where the artists obviously know their audience really well right you're almost treating the vocal like an instrument rather than how you might treat it in like a pop song where it's mm-hmm. the piece most people are going to latch onto. Yeah. An audience like this, like you're saying, they want this shreddiness. Mm-hmm. So you can hold mm-hmm. off on the vocal for three minutes and you're not losing your audience the way you would in another style. Right, right. Well, the interesting thing is like the 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 parts where um, they're really being like their most dream theateriness are, are mm-hmm. instrumental because they're so intricate. It's almost yeah. like right. this funny trade-off. Yeah, when they're singing, the instrumental stuff needs to kind of at least be a little bit more manageable and support the vocals in a certain way. Yeah, maybe it's just a democratic treatment of an ensemble that you don't see everywhere else. Like. Like even Carter bringing up the bass getting to shine and the vocalist now having yep. to step back. Right. Right. Everyone's equal. Yeah. And part of my checklist of epicness, there are an insane amount of time signatures. I'm not going to break them down all, but <laughs> yeah, it is. Multiple time signatures is a sign of epicness. That is, that is definitely a sign of, is, it, it's not on the checklist, but it's like, uh, it's like above and beyond. <laughs> There's, if I wanted to break down everything harmonically on this tune, we would be here for the next seven days. So I'll just mention one part. Uh, from the intro and, and based really off that that bass line or the bass chordal part and, and the guitars coming in with the riff, um, you have uh, the, the bass spelling out starting with a B minor, then a B minor 7, uh, then a G major 7, and then G sharp uh, minor 7 flat 5. Um, those like He's playing double stops up top, just, just two notes at a time, creating these different thirds and, and sometimes seconds. Um, but where are you getting that harmony is because he has the low B ringing out and the mm. F sharp harmonic ringing out. So everything wow. that he's playing quarterly up top influences the greater harmony that's going on. Right. Uh, very B Dorian when you get that uh, G sharp uh, in there as well. It's just kind of maybe a, a small moment of a, of a passing chord. But um, they, I, I, the other thing I will mention too, I think I know like the reason why the song is in B minor uh, is to write in the full uh, range of both the bass being the low B string is the low mm. string and John Pertucci playing a seven string guitar with a low B string. So if you want it to be heavy, you want to have something you can have, you can tune down your guitar or you can play to the lowest range that you possibly have, which on the bass and, and the seven string guitar is the low B. Um, what are your thoughts on just really, really long songs? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. My band, Sontag Shogun, um, what, the way we, you know, we play quite long songs, but they're all created like organically. You know, we're not triggering clips or we're not doing, we're, we're right. actually making the sounds as they happen. It starts like with just a single field recording or something like that. And at the end, it's a wall of noise. And so that's how we try and kind of keep a level of interest is by, mm-hmm. um, is through that kind of organic creation process. That said, I, it's probably boring to a lot of people. <laughs> but I think the, there is a performative quality to, quality to that kind of thing, though. Like, I think for for a song to exist in that lengthy way where you listen to it in your own home is mm-hmm. is an interesting challenge but i think mm. in a live setting you get transported with it that that's still variation it's just a different kind and that's going to do it for another episode of themes and variation thank you so much for listening we really want to know what epic songs you love listening to so as always there is a link to a spotify community playlist in our show notes feel free to add your tracks there 
And remember to head to soundfy.com for all of your music learning needs. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.